Why do we do what we do? That, I would suggest, is the million-dollar question. Why do we do what we do? Because if you can answer that question, you're halfway to understanding people and knowing how you can help them, fix them, solve their problems. Why do we do what we do? And, you know, there are many people around the, around the world trying to answer this question, most of them groping in the dark, of course. We could put it another way. What do we really want deep down in our hearts? Well, Lisa and I watched a lecture recently recorded from about 20 years ago, I think, from the Van Til Hall at Westminster Theological Seminary. And David Powlison asked the 60 or so students there, if you're an alien, naive observer, hovering up there, that would be equally said, if you were a third grader or a sixth grader, and you were to look down on these funny two-legged creatures with their strange appendages on the front of their faces, what would you observe? What would you notice? What makes them tick? And of course, these bright young students shouted out their answers. And I'm sure if a group of us went into a room afterwards, you know, before I said this message, we'd come up with a list pretty much the same. Okay, because these things are all around us. So they came up with a list, he wrote them down in order, and David or David's teacher would say, if you're taking notes this evening, because I'll refer to these once or twice as we go, you might want to number down a page, one to seven, and I'll quickly run through the list of things that these naive observers, uh, these students, these aliens, these third graders, us if we were in a room, uh, make people tick. Survival comes first, doesn't it? Oxygen, water, shelter, food, and so on. That's going to motivate us. Sex, reproduction, that came second on the list. Money, possessions, social inclusion, acceptance, love. That's number four. Number five, for the social ranking, competition, status. Number six, achievement or accomplishment. And number seven was some sort of category for identity or meaning, some sort of higher purpose. Biblically, if we were to put those sort of things into biblical language, and I'll prove to you very straightforwardly in a moment that they're all through the Bible, these things, um, various passions and pleasures leading to works of the flesh, desires in short. And back in the 1960s, before the field fractured a little bit, there were three main schools of thought, because you can have these uh, observations, these Lego bricks, as, uh, as David Powerson called them. But of course, they're just a bunch of random ideas and observations until you put them into some sort of framework or some sort of theory of why we do what we do, of what makes us tick. So back in the 60s, there were three main schools, the behaviorists, who said, actually, we're all about drives. So our primary drives are numbers one and two for survival and sex and reproduction. And the other things, those sort of more social things, are just means to an end. They're like animals, in other words. The second, the second big school of thought were the Freudians. They said, actually, it's to do with instincts. And they said, we're in conflict. One and two came up with this sort of 
mythical, extraordinary sort of terms for these things, didn't he? The id here, and then over here, the superego numbers four and five. And they were in conflict. We, we had to get along with one another and sort of work our way around to get these things, and they were in conflict. And in biblical language, we could sort of see what he's talking about because we've got uh, desires over here and we've got our conscience over here. And then the third big school of thought, a sort of hierarchical model. And some of you will have heard this in the business world. You know, we've got a triangle, uh, a hierarchy of needs. Maslow, Abraham Maslow would be the best known exponent of this. And of course, you may have heard this smuggled into the church over the last 50 years. Jesus meets our needs, they say. And of course, that is completely the opposite of behaviorism because that everything is to, a means to an end to get numbers one and two. And with, with Maslow's hierarchy with a triangle, it's all to get to number seven and one and two are at the bottom. So they can't all be right. And then eventually they tore each other apart and they were... Uh, there's no grand unifying theories anymore since those days. And of course, we would say, wouldn't and you'd expect your preacher to say this, that there is only one grand unifying theory. There's only one school of thought with the truth, and that's biblical Christianity. So I said, well, we find these things, and uh, you'll see where I'm going with this in a moment, I hope. Uh, that The love of money is there, isn't it? It's the root of all kinds of evil. That's number three. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Number four. In Luke 22, the disciples were discussing who is the greatest. Number five. And we're going to be thinking a bit about Solomon this afternoon. So let's see what Solomon uh, says in chapter, chapter two of Solomon. We can pick out many of these things. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. That's number two. And then in verse uh, verse 4, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. That's number 6. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants. That's number uh, 5, status. And then in verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold. That's number 3. And the special treasures of kings. I acquired male and female singers, comma, the, desire, the, the delights of the sons of men. And in the ESV version, which I know some of you have, it says instead of the, the delights of the sons of men, it says concubines. So that was number two. Well, we've got four sub-questions to briefly explore this million-dollar question of why we do what we do. I'm going to be looking at 1 Kings 3 as our main passage and I'm urging you this afternoon, friends, to be wiser than Solomon. To be wiser than Solomon. And our first question then is this. What did Solomon get right? What did he get right? So, verse 5. God appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask, what shall I give you? And in verse 7 and 8, we see, it says, I'm only a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. He was a new king. We think he was about 18 years of age. He was aware that he lacked know-how and the experience to govern Israel. So what did he ask for? What did he most want? What was his heart's desire? What was making Solomon tick? 
Verse 9. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. He wanted to rule the nation with wisdom and justice. Verse 10. This pleased the Lord. It wasn't a foolish request. It wasn't a selfish request. He didn't ask, verse 11. He didn't ask for a long life. Number one, survival. He didn't ask for that. He didn't ask for riches, number three. He didn't ask for the life of his enemies, competition, status, number five. No. And because he asked for the right thing, because he wasn't selfish, because he wasn't foolish, because his heart was right, he was given what he asked for. Verse 12, I've given you a wise and understanding heart so that there's not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. But also you'll note, verse 13, I've also given you what you've not asked for. He gave him riches and honour, numbers three and five. And we know that Solomon was given his heart's desire. He was given that sort of wisdom for administration and justice because of his brilliant judgment in the rest of this chapter. We're not going to look at this in any particular depth, but many of you will know the story of the two prostitutes in the rest of um, 1 Kings 3. It's an amazing story. It's just very sort of uh, well-known and straightforward. But it's just a brilliant, brilliant judgment. It proves that he was given this wisdom. Because you see, there were two prostitutes and they gave birth to sons within three days of each other. They were in a house together. There was nobody else there. And one night, one of the babies died. And the mother of the baby who died gave the dead baby to the other mother and swapped them round. And in the morning, the mother of the really uh, alive baby woke up and saw that the son in her bosom wasn't hers, and they went to the king. And they both claimed that the baby that was living was theirs. And what the king said was, bring me a sword, and let's divide the baby into two, and you can have half each. And the mother of the baby who was living out of compassion for her little baby's son, said, no, let the other woman have her. And it became clear to the king and everybody around her them, that she was the real mother. So, so King Solomon was given the desire of his heart. But I want to say to you, be wiser than Simon, uh, than Solomon, sorry, than Solomon. Because he was wise, he was wise, but he went wrong. We'll come to see that in just a moment. But how do we know, uh, how would, why, why do we say that Solomon uh, is so different from the observations that our alien observers have come to see? Why is it that he was able to ask for this wise and sensible thing rather than something uh, selfish and foolish? Well, he was asleep, wasn't he? And the commentators, the Puritan commentators that I um, consulted would say our dreams, I don't want to get Freudian on you, but our dreams often represent or uh, reflect what it is that we most, most think about in our hearts. But this, let's not kid ourselves, let's face it, this was a, 
uh, an ordinary dream. It was a divinely inspired dream. And uh, Solomon uh, expressed what was most on his heart. And the reason he had changed, the reason that he asked for what he asked for, was God's grace. We can see that. We can't be dogmatic that that's the re that, you know that, that that that's what our dreams mean. But it becomes clear, I think, if you uh, study the passage, that deep down his desires, his in his heart, had been changed. So wisdom, then, it's the number one thing we can re we read that in our passage earlier in um, uh, in Proverbs chapter four. Let's just read that again very briefly. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. It's the principal thing. And if I can say this to you reverently, this Christmas season, if you ask for one thing, get wisdom. And if you find it, you have guaranteed everlasting and a happy future. But be wiser than Solomon. Be wiser than Solomon. He was the wisest man in the Old Testament, but his reign ended tragically. He increased, increasingly compromised his loyalty to God. So what can we learn from this? I mean, let's put it another way. If he was so wise, why did he have so many wives? So let's look at the passage again. Verse 1. Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Now some people think that perhaps that was acceptable to uh, secure a border, that this sort of treaty with a neighbouring king was okay. Perhaps even this woman was converted. But I don't think there's any evidence for that. But even if we allow it, you've only got to go on to... Um, chapter 11, when it all really started to unravel. And you can see that marrying foreign wives was not a good idea. Chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. He defied that command. God knew that they would turn his heart away after their gods. He was foolish and disobedient. He certainly went wrong, didn't he, with number two. But if we read his own book again, back to that chapter in Ecclesiastes, chapter two, at the end he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He married all these foreign women. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. My heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on all the labour in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So he wasn't just foolish with number two, he was foolish with number six. He was foolish even in where he was looking for meaning. The whole of that book is written as a sort of meditation on where man should find meaning. He went on to say in chapter seven, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets. And when he wrote Proverbs, it was pretty much the same theme there as well. He warned his son, doesn't he, against seductive women. So despite writing so much wisdom 
and so many of the books there of, uh, of wisdom in the scriptures, he ended his life sadly. He forsook the Lord and he worshipped and built temples to idols with the result that ten tribes from Israel were taken and torn from his son Rehoboam. In verses 2 to 4, we read that the people didn't yet have a temple where they could make sacrifices, but they did have the tabernacle currently at Gibeon. That was the place to worship. But Solomon, instead of destroying the high places, associated as they were with pagan worship, worshipped there too. He ended his, his life, chapter 11, building even more of them for these wives. Wanted to gain their approval, didn't he? He backslid. He was a poor example, leading Israel astray. But the million-dollar question is this. It remains, why did he do this? If Solomon was wise, why did he do this? Why, the wisest man in the Old Testament, why did he marry all these women? Why did he continue to worship at the high places? Well, possibly, part of the answer may be that wisdom in the Bible can mean more than just wisdom globally. It can mean for a particular purpose, a particular skill, in governing well, in executing justice. I think that's perhaps what we see here in verse 11. The account of the two prostitutes proves he received it. And there's other types of wisdom as well. I was reading in my own readings this morning in Daniel, Daniel and his friends, they, had, they seemed to have this special wisdom to acquire language and knowledge. They had a high IQ, didn't they? They were good with the arts and humanities. Hiram, or Hiram, in chapter 7 of uh, 1 Kings, was skilled in bronze. He had a particular wisdom and skill for that. So the wisdom that you read in the Bible can mean for a particular skill. You wouldn't want me working with your bronze, I can tell you. But I think there's something further than that. Because, of course, Solomon was a very wise man in the overall sense. These, the, 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 the scripture bears that out. But you read there in, chapter, in verse 14, there's this very, very clear warning. If you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And you know, God appeared to Solomon a second time in chapter 9, and that warning was reiterated almost verbatim. And why is this warning needed to Solomon, this wise man, this man who's uh, clearly been changed by grace, his heart's desires are in line with God? Why was there this warning? A warning, actually, that wasn't heeded, but a warning that was so much needed. Well, I think it's because, actually, God foresaw that this wisdom, this Wisdom that people would come from the east and from far away to see and to hear. and He was just the wisest man in the Old Testament. He had riches beyond compare. Would go to his head. Could lead him to being puffed up and proud and careless. Like a spoiled playboy. And that is exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. He didn't heed the warning. He needed wisdom that was wholly devoted to God. Not, as we read in verse 3, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. His father, David, of course, did go gloriously wrong. We heard about that this morning. But his um, wasn't a sort of 
gradual and chronic backsliding over a period of time in his life. It was more of a sort of, it was a big blip, I know, but it was more of a blip against a backdrop of, uh, a backdrop of devotion and commitment. So, how do we get wisdom? How do we get wisdom? Well, first, a how not to. We cannot get this godly wisdom while ignoring God. He is the source of wisdom. Romans 1. What do people do? They can see the beauty all around them, can't they? God is obviously here. We've been sitting outside the river gardens in Belpa. Lisa and Grace have been debating as to whether it's a light dusting of snow or a frost. I don't really care about that. When you look at it, it's beautiful. It's amazing. You'd never convince me that that happened randomly. There's beauty, isn't it? There's a design. There's a designer behind the design. And yet man wants to suppress that. I don't know whether I've said this before, but it's one of those open-air mission CDs. John Hawley says on it that a friend of his says, as the heckler goes past the open-air preacher, he says, what a load of rubbish. And he said, you know, sir, you're a suppressor of truth. That's all you are. And that's right, because the truth of God is all about us. And yet the non-Christian, the unbeliever, the agnostic, the atheist, he wants to suppress it. He wants to go after numbers one to seven, riches, honour, approval, women, whatever it may be, meaning in some other sphere. That's where these secular theories all fall down. They're godless. There's nothing in them. They're okay, incidentally. If they're helping you to write a list or get your thinking straight, up to a point, unless they overreach. They're, they're okay, aren't they, if they can you know, get you to think more positively and take some action and that type of thing. But once they, and they can't resist this, I have to say, once they start getting below the surface and start to talk to you about your values and the motivators underneath, they're getting into territory that they're out of their depth because they'll never, never understand that without God. So don't be a fool and ignore God. Proverbs 1, uh, 1 verse 7. Don't be a fool and despise instruction. Don't be one of those people that won't be told what to do, that isn't teachable. That's no foundation for gaining wisdom. So more positively then, in verse 9, this understanding can be translated as hearing. So Solomon literally asked for a hearing heart, a hearing heart. And wisdom and understanding, firstly, comes from hearing the word. It's not that we're born wise, or even some people are wise, or have a wise trait or something. It's not even necessarily experience that gives us wisdom. There's plenty of old fools about, aren't there? But wisdom comes as we hear and absorb the word of God. We become like the wise man who built his house on the rock. We're the hearer and the doer. Are we wise? Do we listen to the word of God and do we act upon it? What about what others are saying to us? We often say, don't we, we should be good listeners, but that includes feedback. And we've heard a couple of times recently, haven't we? It's in the context of the wedding recently. What about your understanding heart for husbands? 1 Peter 3, verse 7. So Solomon's request wasn't to suddenly become wise. No, it was to become a good hearer 
and doer of the word. That is the fear of the Lord and that is wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. We first of all have to know who God is, what he's really like. And as we see his greatness, as we see his holiness, we see his omnipotence, his wisdom, we fall down and worship in awe and a sincere commitment to obey him. And it's only when our hearts are right with him that we can get this heavenly wisdom, seeing life from his perspective and responding to it. Live knowing that our loving Heavenly Father is watching us. He's not just omnipotent and holy. He's omniscient. He knows everything that we think. He knows all about us. He knows about our sinful nature. Which, in a funny sort of way, is reassuring because, you know, we think, oh, should we confess? I want to hide this from him. He knows all about us. He knows us through and through. He's omnipresent. What a thought, isn't it? He's there with us all the time. He's watching us closely. And Solomon sums up wisdom right at the end of Ecclesiastes when he says, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. And my fourth and final question is this. Where do we see wisdom most clearly? Where do we see wisdom most clearly? Solomon showed wisdom and foolishness. He was both a type of Christ and a picture of human failure. Solomon was wise, but Jesus is wisdom. The Queen of the South, or the Queen of Sheba, came from the end of the earth to hear wisdom, but a greater than Solomon is here. So all things were created through Jesus. All things. Even as a child, his teachers were astonished at his answers and his understanding. And in the Old Testament, Wisdom, as we've seen, centred around the fear of God. But in the New Testament, wisdom focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. We've just got one more reference to turn up. Colossians and chapter 2. We read in verse 3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But we're warned in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Philosophy, according to the principles of the world. Empty deceit. You know, these secular theories can describe what's going on. They can observe, but they have no real understanding of how things really are. They can't give us meaning in life, and they certainly can't make us wise. They can't even diagnose what's wrong with us. We suffer and we sin because we live in a fallen world cut off from God. There's brokenness all around us. We need God's wisdom, don't we? found only in Jesus Christ. So how do we find this true wisdom? Through the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit applying his word, the gospel, to our hearts. And we only become wise when we're united to Christ, and he enables us, he empowers us to live wisely. 
1 Corinthians, Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. We see Jesus' wisdom clearly at the cross when he died for us. He enabled us to be declared righteous and redeemed into God's family. But we don't see it only in his death. We perhaps see it principally there. We see it in Jesus' life, don't we? We see how he thought, how he felt, how he chose, how he acted, how he forgave. And as we see that, how he spoke, we are changed into his likeness. This sanctification is the renewing of our hearts and our behaviour. And he comes with mercy. Jesus comes with mercy, bearing the consequences of our sin, of our focus on what we want, those faulty desires of our hearts. He credits his goodness to our account. And as our shepherd and teacher, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, for those who put their trust in him, he starts to change what we actually want, like he did with Solomon. It's why Solomon was asked, able to ask for wisdom rather than the things that otherwise would have been making him tick. Those invisible, if you like, those desires, that sinful nature, most of which we can't see going on, you know, in the black box, if you like. At the core of which is our failure to love the Lord, our God, as we should with all our heart, soul and mind. And one day when Jesus returns, we will be made fully good uh, and be fully changed.